following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. We'll turn back to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk 2, we're going to pick up in verse 4 again, and we will work through uh, verse 20. I prayed before coming out here, the Lord would help us after having a hearty meal of pasta. It's a little difficult to hang in there, but we trust the Lord's uh, help for all of us, myself included. Well, a bit of a shift in the text now. The title of our sermon this afternoon is Woe to Him. And we get into the woes that God pronounces. Uh, Some of you are likely familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the 20th century author who wrote about the horrors of the Soviet Union and the oppressive results of Marxist and Leninist ideals. Solzhenitsyn had written several groundbreaking novels that outlined the brutality of the Soviet regime, and he scolded the Soviet leaders for their attempted eradication of Christian religion and morality, as he sought, and for substituting the ideology with atheism. Solzhenitsyn was a very keen observer of culture, and he understood profoundly the Christian view of the world and of the heart of mankind. Now, probably his most famous book was called The Gulag Archipelago, which was just republished last year. And in this book, he's writing about the oppression that many uh, experienced at the hands of the communists. But it was, it was absolutely profound how he deals with them. It's right when you assume that he's going to write about how horrible the communists are. Here's what he he writes. He says, let the reader who expects this book to be a political expose slam its cover closed right now. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. Then our problems would be solved. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Listen to this carefully. He writes, confronted by the pit into which we are about to toss those who have done us harm, we halt stricken dumb. It is after all only because of the way things worked out that they were the executioners and we weren't. And what he's saying is that at the hearts of the communists who persecuted him and others, that the very same thing is at the heart of all of us. Pride and idolatry come from every human heart and are at the root of every human culture. But in God's infinite wisdom, we cut through all of that in the Bible and see what God tells us. Do you know what the real problem is? The real problem is you and your own heart. And that's what's infecting every single individual. It's what infects every single culture. So what Solzhenitsyn is pointing out is that we might walk up to the pit into which we can throw everyone we want to declare to be bad, all of those that we have demonized. And yet, if we have a moment of clarity, we are going to stop and say, they alone are not bad people. We're all bad people together. In terms of our condition, we're all in the same boat. 
if you have a Christian worldview, you realize you and I have the same seeds in our own hearts to be what everyone else is. And it is only by the grace of God that we're not the executioner. And as we, as we keep looking at this oracle of Habakkuk, we have to be thinking about the issues of pride and idolatry that fuel evil actions from every human heart. Remember, all along, Habakkuk has been absolutely perplexed by God's pronouncement of judgment on Judah by raising up the ruthless army from, from Babylonia to destroy this nation and to take the survivors into captivity. And he cannot wrap his mind around the fact that his good, faithful, covenant-keeping God is going to bring destruction upon his people through such a wicked force. But he's starting with the assumption that there's something more worthy within Judah. That there's something less deserving of judgment in Judah than Babylon. Now, for Habakkuk, there's no doubt. Many of the people in Judah were evil. But he wondered, is it right that those who are even more evil than my fellow countrymen, that they should declare victory over us? So the Lord has been slowly but surely bringing Habakkuk to see the fundamental reality of what's really going on and what's really at the heart of all of us. It's not that Judah had a lesser tendency to do evil. It's that Judah is more deserving of mercy and so shouldn't be judged by the onslaught of the Chaldeans is what he thought. It's, it's that every sin of pride and idolatry deserves judgment commensurate with our sin. That's how we ought to think. And the tendency we can have when, when reading something like what we're looking at is the same tendency that Habakkuk had, namely to look at others and say, you know what? They really are the worst of the worst and will get what they deserve. But what we often fail to do is to say, were it not for the Lord, I would be right there with them. We need to constantly remind ourselves that it's not by our doing that we are not who the Chaldeans were. It is by the grace of God alone. It's a lesson that Habakkuk has had to learn and that we will do well to contemplate ourselves because in our text, the Lord is going to deal very directly with those who are his enemies, those who have not experienced the saving grace of God and are so opposed to God and so opposed to his people in every way that they're willing to do what their hearts desire. And it's here that we see that while God did in fact raise up this army against Judah, it wasn't as though he was doing anything with them that wasn't already in their hearts. They were not resistant to the Lord's will to attack Judah. The Chaldeans were ruthless. They were bloodthirsty. They were out to win the battle in any way that they possibly could. And so as we look at how God deals with them, we need to think of our own hearts. And we can do so with absolute thankfulness that we have been set free by the blood of Christ that we not be set on shedding the blood of others. Because it's in there. The seeds of evil are in every human heart. And I want to remind us of what we looked at this morning because it's there that we see what God has done in making new creations in Christ. Remember verse four, God said to Habakkuk, behold, 
Speaking of the evil man, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. He was, he was comparing this man who is full of pride and full of idolatry to the man who walks faithfully in the Lord, who walks and lives by faith and not by sight. And it's important that we understand the language that the Bible uses here. Psalm 53 and Romans 3 remind us very clearly, there is none who is righteous, no one does good, not even one. So the Lord's not saying there is a man who is righteous in and of himself. As Christians, we understand that anything righteous about us, the right standing that we have before God is is not because of us. But it's the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us or or placed upon us that as God looks upon us, for those who are in Christ, he sees the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ standing for us, working for us, and in turn working through us by faith. So the text doesn't sort of undo anything that I said initially about man's heart, but it reminds us yet again of our great need for Christ. The description of the other man, the one who is called righteous, when I wasn't, uh, excuse me, the one who is not righteous, when I wasn't in Christ, that was me. And that's you. If God has not saved you, if the Holy Spirit has not regenerated you, if Christ has not stood in your place, this is what he says of your soul. It is puffed up. And this is the man that God deals with in the remainder of our text this afternoon. The passage contains a series of five woes against the Chaldeans specifically, but it's really about God's enemies in general. And we're going to walk through this to understand the Lord's anger and his judgment against those who oppose him and how he assures them that he will deal with it. And it's not, it's not the answer to Habakkuk's most ultimate question, but it is an assurance that those who sinfully oppose God and his people will not go unpunished. So let's read together again in verse four. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man, who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stones will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. 
Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So look at verse 5. We sort of have an introductory statement of what is coming. The Lord is continuing to explain the state of the heart of the evildoer. He says, moreover, wine is a traitor. An arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations, collects as his own all peoples. And so God is just laying out their sin. And in the center of, the, uh, of all of this, in Babylonian society and culture, that there's all kinds of sin. And we see the rottenness. We see the evil, we see the ruthlessness, we see the greed, we see the bloodshed, we see the violence against the poor and the weak. And we're like Habakkuk, we read about them and we say, yeah, the Babylonians, how awful. They're, they're burning cities to the ground, they're killing people, they're raping, they're pillaging. And, and it's right to think that it is evil, it is awful. It's likely that very few of any of us have done any of those things externally like the Babylonians. So it's pretty easy to say, well, that's not me. But here's what we have to pay attention to. Look at how the Lord describes the man who does these things. The description is very important because this is his nature. This is his character. He says he's arrogant. He is never at rest. He's greedy. He's never satisfied. In other words, the reason why Babylonian culture is filled with people who are trying to make money and have militaristic power at their center is that they're proud and that they're empty. They need to clothe themselves with glory. They have a deep longing to be great. And so they prove their power and they prove their worth by destroying others. And the Lord implies here that that it's, it's partially because of the deceiving power uh, of, of wine, that the one who is puffed up is blinded to his true state. He lives in this deluded condition, intensified by wine. So not only are the Chaldeans waging battle against other nations, they're doing so while they're drunk on wine and all the more out of control. They have this liquid courage and they have this bloated self-esteem and it's all in their sinful heart and mind. So yes, the Chaldeans are wicked. There's no question about that. But listen, it's not so far from reasons that we could find in our own hearts. Pride, a longing to be great, a longing to be noticed and applauded, addicted to wine, filled with self. Does any of that sound like you at any point in your own life? Have you ever been any of these things? 
This is why verse four is important to us, brothers and sisters. It's so important that we live by faith because we are so prone to the very things that bring great destruction and judgment from the Lord. And then in verse six, he says, shall not all of these, in other words, all of the nations that the Chaldeans have conquered, shall they not take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? In other words, that day will come when all of the nations they have bullied shall mock them. And how they do that is all the more deflating. They scoff at them. They taunt them with riddles and sayings that embarrass them. And all of their enemies will join in. Even this tiniest of nations will join in without fear of God's judgment upon them. Just as God raised up the Chaldeans in judgment against Judah, so too will he raise up nations to shame the wicked. His glory before all his creation is magnified by honoring the humble and disgracing the arrogant. So we have this background and we see that God is now responding very directly. So let's look carefully at these five woes. There's an impending divine judgment for the superpower of the world. And it's a warning to all superpowers of the world who gain their prosperity and their dominance through might. Each one of these woes highlights a divine law of retribution, and it's tied to the very moral fabric of all of creation. God, in his justice, repays evil in retribution, and he does so by highlighting the very principles that we see all throughout Scripture. So let's look at them one at a time, and I want to point out that in all of our translations, we have the word woe for each of these. But really, it's not a word that can be translated very well in English. It's more accurate to say, uh, to see this as God saying, ha, it's almost this mocking fashion. He's saying, you think you're great? Ha, just wait and see. So let's look. First principle of judgment, verses six through eight, is that you reap what you sow. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. In other words, because you have pillaged many nations, all of the remaining nations will pillage you. This is a divinely instituted reality of human life on earth. And a lot of us have a hard time learning that, don't we? Especially early on in life. Some are better than others at getting the hang of it. But some of you know that it is is true from a long list of circumstances in which you continue to experience this form of just judgment. For some, it's simply not being wise with what you've been given by God. And so you suffer through the consequences of that. It's if you're, if you're waiting for your paycheck to come in because you want to buy the latest iPhone without thinking about your bills that you have to pay in two weeks so you can keep the lights on and the water running, you might be eating pork rinds and sunflower seeds you find in the floorboard of your car for the end of the month to stay alive until you get paid again. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. 
But that gets right back to where we begin. What goes on in our hearts has a direct impact on how we function in the world, how we treat others, how we do with what God commands of us. Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew's gospel? The man was forgiven a, what would be something like a multi-million dollar debt by the one to whom he owed it. And as soon as he was released from that debt, what did he do? He went and found a man who owed him about, say, a hundred dollars. And he choked him. And he insisted that he pay it all or else he would have him put in jail. So what happens? The, the man who forgave him this multi-million dollar debt had him locked up and says, Never mind. You want to treat others that way after you've been forgiven so much, you will stay here until the very last penny is paid. In other words, you've, you've sown unforgiveness, therefore unforgiveness will be applied to you. You've reaped what you've sown. You see, the scriptures show us that God shall do right, and part of his rightness will be Uh, expressed in the just uh, punishment of all who oppose him. Men and their lands, the city and all its inhabitants have suffered untold violence and unjust conquerors will suffer just retribution. They they should, this should really sober all of us. We should have pity on those who are drunk with success. Those who are only high in life and being noticed in being praised and being adored and being famous and being rich. Beware you who are constantly drinking in the praise of others. It may all be to your demise. It's easy to see injustice and pride in others or in nations or in institutions or in businesses, but the Lord isn't just concerned about all of them. He's concerned about you. What about you? You may not be plundering and raping and murdering. I sure hope not. But do you hold some people to a higher standard than you hold yourself? Are you judging others with a judgment of higher magnitude than God's? What does the Lord say? That whatever that measure of judgment is will be applied to you as well. You see, we, we don't like the idea of, of retributive justice when it's applied to us, do we? When it's someone else, it's just. But me? Not me. For all the the small, seemingly insignificant things that I've done, let me off. Don't hold me responsible. Brothers and sisters, we reap what we sow because we, in Solzhenitsyn's words, recognize that the, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. I'm no better than them and myself. I'm simply a recipient of God's grace and mercy and that's what makes me different. That's what makes you different if you're in Christ. And for those who deal in injustice, the text tells us that the response will come in God's timing. For some considerable length of time, God will show his patience toward those committing repeated acts of cruelty. But such people should never presume that God's mercies will continue any longer than this present moment. Judgment is sure to come and it may come without any additional prior warning. Justice is right around the corner. And so we must be looking back to verse four over and over and over again. The the righteous will live by faith. Are you in Christ? 
If so, you are counted as righteous. So walk in faith, not in the injustice of God's enemies. Second thing he shows us, verses 9 through 11, the principle is that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Now there's, there's no doubt that the Chaldeans were gaining much wealth through dishonest gain, through pillaging and plundering. They were storing up all that they could find. They were keeping it for themselves to feed their lust and their wealth and to fill their covetous desires. In Luke 12, remember Jesus tells the parable of the foolish man who had tremendous wealth. And when his income increases, the man builds bigger and bigger barns. His assumption is that he has found a way to to create peace and security and freedom from fear. And so he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Take it easy. Feel free to fritter away the rest of your life. Don't worry about others. Be concerned about yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry. And his contentment is in what he thinks he has control over. Now, Jesus's point in that parable is not to shame us for owning things or even for owning very nice things. That's not his point. It's to raise our awareness of our covetous hoarding hearts to humble us to recognize that we are far more prone to worship idols that we can buy on Amazon.com than we realize. And again, you may not accumulate all of this like the Chaldeans through theft and through force, but does your greed have you robbing from God? holding back what you want for yourself, never giving to advance the work of God's kingdom, the work of bringing the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world? Are you determining in your heart that your desired outcome in life will be determined by storing up more and more in bigger and bigger barns instead of trusting God to provide for your every need in the days and weeks and months and years ahead? What happens to that man? You see, for him, building new barns was logical and prudent. But Jesus called him a fool and said, this night, your soul will be required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He's not rich toward God. He really has no concern for God. His concern is for himself, what he owes, what he possesses, what he can surround himself with that might make him feel at ease. You see, greed is a powerful trap. It will devour those who are not watchful. It will devour those who, whose eyes and whose hearts are not set upon the kingdom of God, but only concerned with the fleeting kingdom of self. The Chaldeans were willing to kill and to steal and to rape and to pillage because they were greedy for gain. They were covetous. You have something and I want it and I'm going to do everything I can to get it. Friends, there are some of you here today whose lives consist of nothing more than the accumulation of an abundance of your possessions. But the warning from your creator is clear. This is not how you were meant to live. And it may very well be that tomorrow your soul will be required of you. 
that longing that you feel, that, that need that you are seeking to fulfill every time you go to get the next best thing will never be fulfilled. It will never be met in a possession of some item in and of itself. It may be neat, it may be useful, it may be very helpful, and it may in itself be a very wonderful thing to have. But 100% of the time, it will fail to bring you what your heart is ultimately longing for. Only Jesus Christ can provide what every man, woman, and child needs. And unless your joy is found in Christ alone, you will be found wanting, and you will spend your life crawling after your next desired possession. And the flip to that is when you're in Christ and you're delighting in Christ, you can look at all that God has given you and you can use it in the way it was intended and it will bring much joy in your life because you're not looking to it to provide for you what it cannot provide. And the Lord says when our hearts are set on covetous desires and when all we're chasing after is the things this world has to offer, the Lord says, woe to you. What good is it for you to have everything you want for your short span of life on this earth, but in the end, to be everlastingly judged by God? Turn to Christ that you can find rest from the relentless pursuit of that which will never satisfy. You were meant to live to the glory of God, that you could hold possessions in this world loosely and look to God with a thankful heart, seeing beyond all the gifts that you've been given to the giver of those gifts that they might not be enjoyed as idols, but as pointers to our creator. Thirdly, he shows us verses 12 through 14, the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here God is condemning those who build cities and establish them with violence and with malice. Woe to them. People who act in this way will be judged. And the reality of their activity is very clearly defined. They weary themselves and tire themselves out for what? Verse 13, it says, for nothing. The sense here is literally that of an empty pit or an empty vessel. The unrighteous strive to get goods by extortion and malice and and lying, yet these very things have little true and lasting value at all. They fix their eyes on the prize and the prize is fleeting. It is merely an illusion. And so they end up holding an empty sack. You don't have to study much world history to recognize that the the unrighteous have always visited violence and destruction upon others to get what they want. Their philosophy is to get whatever they want, however they can get it. But notice what he says in verse 13. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? What's going on here? God is simply giving these nations over to their sin. Does God make them sin? No. Does God force them to be greedy? No. Does God insist on them storing up their grain in bigger and bigger barns? No. It's already in their hearts. 
all God does is allow them to do what they already want to do, which is contrary to what God has commanded. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the truth is that the glory that carnal man pursues is sinking, but he's oblivious to it. So for now, he will continue to reach for it. He will seek to gain however he can. But in the place of man's fleeting glory, God's glory will abound. One day when the great commission has finally been fulfilled and and the gospel has been brought to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's as good as done. He's already promised it. The Lord is king. He will forever reign in the new heavens and the new earth and every eye will see, every ear will hear, every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And brothers and sisters, how many people do we know who pursue emptiness to find meaning and purpose for their lives? How many of us spent so much of our own lives pursuing emptiness before God transformed us in the power of the gospel? How many have wealth and many material possessions but are very unhappy and broken? How often do you see people who have what so many want, fame and wealth and applause of man, and then we wake up to the news in the morning and find that they have killed themselves because they're miserable? The irony is that it is these very things that the world tells us to pursue. The world tells us that these things can give us all the satisfaction and contentedness and happiness that we want and that we're longing for. But the Lord says to those who follow the world's advice, woe to you. In the end, it isn't your new house or your new car that will be noticed. And it's not your legacy that will be remembered. It is the glory of the Lord. And so God is telling Habakkuk, the earth will be filled. We're going to win and the victory will be everlasting. And so friends, don't continue seeking meaning and hope in that which was never intended to provide you what you so desperately long for. The call is to live by faith in Christ alone. Why? Our fourth principle of judgment in verses 15 through 17, God will repay the unjust. Look again, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath, you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. See, God is accusing the wicked of persuading others to join them in their evil activities. Literally, he's saying that they're forcing others to get drunk on their ways to engage in their ungodliness. The apostle Paul mentions this as a common practice of the ungodly. Remember in Romans 1, he says, though they knew, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so they simply encourage others to act in the same way as they do themselves. 
But when the, when the neighbors are sucked in and begin to act shamefully, it's not as if the wicked one welcomes them to the club. They're, they're not all of a sudden part of the crew. Now you see the instigators now turn on them. They taunt and ridicule their neighbors for their drunkenness and their nakedness. And what is their demise? Verse 16, they will be seated with shame and disgrace. And the Apostle Paul says, they glory in their shame. So in mocking them here, God is telling the Chaldeans and in turn all of his enemies, drink up, fill yourself with all your wicked ways. Enjoy it while it lasts because this is as good as it will ever be for you. Truly, this is your best life right now. It doesn't get any better than this for you. Drinking in the cup of wickedness will end in the drinking of another another cup and namely the cup of the Lord's right hand, the cup of God's wrath that is being stored up for God's enemies. Psalm 75 says, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another for in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The unrighteous will drink their fill of wicked things and in turn they will drink their fill of God's justice. Any earthly glory they may receive from their ruthless ways and success will be overtaken by shame, disgrace, and condemnation. And when the Lord gives the exhortation to them, he gives them an imperative to show their uncircumcision. He's literally saying, Turn around and around so everyone can see. It's a shameful act in their, in their nakedness that they would just stand and turn so everyone can see. It's humiliating. But who are these that are the uncircumcised? Or excuse me, the, those who were the circumcised. It was the people of God. And, and so God is saying, show the world that you're not one of mine. For Habakkuk, For the people of Judah hearing this, what a shameful thing. They had received the external sign of circumcision, but here's God's warning. The real sign isn't what's on the outside, it's what's in your heart. Do you have a circumcised heart? That's what matters. And if if not, if you're not in Christ, you are like the Babylonian. Have you been made new in Christ? If not, the Lord says, it is to your shame that you walk in defiance of me. And God will see to it that sin is exposed and sin is punished. It is a sober warning indeed. And so he goes on in verses 18 through 20 to show us the final principle of judgment. It's that God is a jealous God. Look at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. What a foolish endeavor. The Lord points this out to pay, to pay homage to a wooden or stone object. How foolish, how utterly worthy of ridicule. He's mocking them. One of the, one of the greatest forms of communication, in my opinion, 
when you're dealing with those who would oppose God, that they're simply mocked. And he's saying, is there anything more stupid than staying, saying to a piece of wood or stone, awake, arise, teach me. Do you remember Elijah's taunts against the pagan prophets of Baal? They were attempting uh, to get their idol to arise and to do battle with God at Mount Carmel. I love this passage of scripture. His, his harsh, sarcastic tone really warms my heart. <laughs> he said, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he's musing or he's, he's relieving himself. He's on a journey. Maybe, maybe he fell asleep and he has to be awakened. What mockery. Cry out to, where is your God? Maybe he's in a deep state of thought or concentration. Maybe he's in the bathroom. He ate too much cheese. <laughs> Maybe he's out on a trip. Maybe he's asleep. Yell louder, he can't hear you. What shame. Look, the idol may look good on the outside, maybe covered in gold and silver. It's lifeless. There's no life. It's empty. The luster is a facade. Material things may, may present as attractive with outward appearances, but what they provide is only skin deep at best. They give no satisfaction. They give no true purpose. They give no meaning. Riches are a whitewashed tomb filled with decaying bones. But idolatry is not the final word. In opposition to this lifeless belief and, and the way of the unrighteous stands one truth. Our God exists and dwells in his holy temple. He alone is worthy of our worship. He's not made of wood. He's not made of stone. He's not made of human hands. He's not overlaid with silver and gold. He never needs to be roused or awakened he doesn't need to take a bathroom break. He's not away on a trip. He is there. He is always there. And he never stops working on our behalf. As the psalmist declares, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. After all is said and done, after all of the questions have been asked, there comes a point at which mankind must acknowledge that God is God. It is he who sits enthroned over all the universe and we as his creatures ought to accept that truth. He is in heaven and we are not. And one day, either willingly or unwillingly, you will bow your knee to him. Matthew Henry wrote, our lot, whatever it is, is that which is appointed to us by the counsel of God, which cannot be altered. And it is therefore our wisdom to reconcile ourselves to it and cheerfully acquiesce in it. In other words, if you're not in Christ, God's word to you is beware. Turn to Christ that you might live. 
Turn to Christ that you might not drink from the cup of wrath, but trust in the one who has done so that we might live and drink the wine of life. Turn to Christ by faith alone. Place all of your hope, all of your trust, all of your longing, all of your satisfaction in the righteousness of Christ alone. And so the things that we tend to turn into idols in our own pride and our own arrogance can now make sense. They find their right place in our lives and can be used properly. That we can now glorify God aright instead of looking to lifeless things and people to satisfy us in ways that only God can. And when we do that, the woes pronounced by God will not be ours to bear because Christ has bore them for us already. Brothers and sisters, our God lives. Our God reigns. And if you are in Christ, that is the greatest news in all the earth. It is the greatest news there will ever be. And so we may we find our rest and our hope in that great truth forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and the challenges that come with all that you have declared in your word. We recognize that at times we come across texts that are, are difficult words for us. They challenge our hearts. They challenge our tendencies. They challenge us in our own sin. They challenge us as we think about things like judgment and destruction. And as it's, it's often difficult to contemplate these things and to consider not only ourselves, but those that we love we recognize that you have given these to us in your word because you want to reveal to us what is right, what is true, what you are doing. Lord, you are under no obligation to tell us these woes. You're under no obligation to reveal to us what you declare is good and right versus that which is evil and destructive. And yet you have. And so may we receive it, not with a spirit of fear, but as a warning, may we receive it as an encouragement to continue to look to Christ. But Lord, as we look to these woes, as we consider our own hearts, every opportunity we have in so doing, we pray that all the more our eyes would be lifted to Christ. That we not continue to constantly look into ourselves, but rather that we would look out to Christ and recognize, yes, I am deserving of all of these woes, but Christ has bore them on behalf of his people. And if I am Christ and he is mine, then I have nothing to fear, but I can stand by faith and I can declare that indeed Jesus Christ is Lord forever and ever. And so may it be that even now as we turn to remember the life and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are reminded that it is because of us that he died. It was for us that he died. And it is for us that he continues to live. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless the Lord's Supper as we receive together, that it would strengthen and nourish us to continue to live and to walk by faith and not by sight. And we pray you would do it all for your glory and for the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, 
and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.